0: Okay. <laughs> Let me hear. Say it one more time. You're listening to fail-er, fail-er, fail-er Failure Failure. Failure 101. Failure. Failure. Wait. Fail your. Fail your failure. 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 Wait, you're, I can't say that word. I... You're listening to Paul Elmore. Perfect. Good evening. Um, lots of eyes pointing towards me, and not a lot, a lot of eyes pointing towards each other. So take just 30 seconds and at least give your name to the person that you're sitting next to if you haven't done that yet, and tell them the biggest failure you've ever made in your entire OK, wait, no, we won't start there. <laughs> we'll, well, you know, we'll start off a little easier than that. Just introduce yourselves, your names real quick, and then we're going to jump in if that's OK. <laughs> You guys have very long names. Imagine that. Can, can you guys hear me in the back? I will try to project. I will try not to yell at you and make it feel like you're being scolded all at the same time. This quote here by Mother Teresa, uh, when I came across it, it, was, um, it sets the tone for what I want kind of this class, both tonight and maybe the next several weeks that we spend some time together. Um, This is the tone that I want to kind of keep in mind. Keep in mind that our community is not composed of those who are already saints. All the saints are welcome to stand up and leave now. Okay. For those who aren't, it's made up of those who are trying to become saints. Therefore, let us be extremely patient with each other's faults and failures. Now, i got to admit, this class is actually pretty safe to teach because it's a topic that everybody has probably dealt with at one point in their life. It's pretty safe to say that everyone has made a mistake, has um, failed at something, but I will admit that I had a hard time putting it together because I'm sitting here going I think there's some very good material, I think there's some stuff that I want to talk to these people about, but what if I put it all together, do all this work and nobody comes and it's a failure. (laughs) And so I debated should I, shouldn't I, should I do this, shouldn't I do this, what do I do, how do I, and then it hit me. If I don't actually give it a shot and try it, what kind of credibility do I have to teach it? Fair enough? So, thank you for coming and not making this, you know, me and two people sitting in a sea of a lot of empty chairs. Well, appreciate you making me feel good here, and so far we're off to a pretty good start, so I really, really appreciate it let's give you a quick outline of where we're going to go. Does everyone know that this is an eight-week class? Is that new information? Okay, we're not going to cover everything tonight. Um, I actually have taught this in four weeks and it is smoking. We're just snapping through, booking through everything. Eight weeks is a little bit more leisurely pace. so I want to show you kind of where we're going to be. Uh, so you, have, you know what to anticipate and you can find out, yes, that's the week I want to come. That's the uh, topic which I think is going to resonate most, most with me. So tonight Oh, look at that. I am just jumping ahead. Okay. Uh, I shouldn't make mistakes. We're going to talk about the concept of where did we learn we shouldn't make mistakes? Do we actually believe that? Do we not believe that? How does that play out? We'll talk a little bit about that. Next week, we're going to talk about my mistakes prove that I am bad. We're going to talk about the difference between shame versus guilt. What that looks like. What types of shame there are. How that shapes kind of uh, how we view ourselves, how we view the world around us. So if you're familiar with some of those terms, shame versus guilt, um, if you think you suffer from shame, suffer from guilt, suffer from both, um, next week might be um, one you might enjoy. We have week three, I'm afraid to try new things. a question already. This is fantastic. Yes? I was wondering, do you have this? Yeah, you should memorize this because (laughs) this is what you're going to need to succeed in life. Um, I'll give you a couple resources for that. You don't have to try to copy it all down tonight. We um, had some resources but they didn't get copied. But that's okay because, see, again, the other nice thing about this class (laughs) is anything that screws up, guess what? You got the instant out. It's a failure. We're going to learn from it, okay? We're going to just move through it. So, safest class in the world to teach right here. Um, for those who want that resource right now, failure101.org, okay, it will actually describe all these classes in there, there's a blog on there that has lots of examples of failures. Um, Do you hear about the baseball game a couple weeks ago, the perfect game that got stolen? Because, yeah, talk about a failure that's in front of the entire world. So stories like that, that resonate well and make my heart happy, because like, okay, good. Number one, it wasn't me. And number two... <laughs> someone else makes mistakes too. So yes, that's available and we can have all this available for you. So week three, I'm afraid to try new things. Um, Risk taking. um, When to do that, when not to do that, what healthy risk looks like, what unhealthy risk looks like. All of these things have to do with failure in some way. Okay. If I make a mistake, sometimes I'm afraid to get back out there again. So risk taking is an important component of failure. Shame versus guilt kind of shapes how we view ourselves, which is kind of the root of some failure. We'll look at some of that tonight as well. Week four, it's going to be, I need to make up for my mistakes. Any guesses what that one's going to be about? I need to make up for my mistakes. Um, close, yeah. I'm going to call it um, control versus grace. I was going to title this week, why we hate grace. Because if we're honest with ourselves, most of us in this room hate the idea of grace. I won't tell you why. Got to wait till week four to find out. But um, control versus grace. Um, Week five is going to be, I need to hide my mistakes so I don't hurt anyone. When we make mistakes, when we have failures, oftentimes that creates conflict. Fair enough? So what does healthy conflict look like? How do we navigate some of that? How do we own our mistakes? How do we find healthy resolution with people? Week five. Week six, um, I have a hard time forgiving myself, and by the way, other people who might have made mistakes that have hurt me or cost me something, or my own mistakes are holding me back and I just can't proceed through it. So that one's about forgiveness. Week seven, I can't seem to get past my past. I'll give you the bad news now so you can decide if you want to come back for the other weeks. Okay? Um, There are some mistakes that can't be fixed. There are some things that we just can't make right. And when that happens, I believe God's given us a wonderful thing called grieving. How we can move through that loss, through that pain, and not be crippled by it. So we'll talk about the grieving process, we'll talk about how to handle mistakes that can't be fixed anymore. And then week eight, this is either good news or bad news depending upon how you view it. Um, I don't want this class to be people sitting here looking to me like I know everything about failure. We have a room full of highly experienced teachers. Again, easiest class in the world to teach, this is nice. And my hope is that we can create an atmosphere over the next eight weeks that feels safe enough to be seen, to be known, to be understood in our imperfections and in our mess. Again, that might be good news for some people and that might be terrifying for others. What I will tell you is you won't be forced to do anything, okay? So you can breathe easy. You will be invited to try things, but you won't be forced. What is that? What are we being invited to try? Ah, sports. There you go. Or to ask the questions, because the one person who is brave enough to ask the hard question usually asks the question that everyone else in the room isn't brave enough to ask yet. So, the depth and wealth uh, and well of knowledge that's sitting in this room right now we need to tap into. We need to um, learn from each other. The other reason that I think that that would be very, very beneficial is I am a guest speaker. Um, I don't walk with you throughout the rest of the year. You guys get to walk with each other and if this is a jumping off point, this is a way for you to either start seeking the help that you'd like to find or go deeper in some of that help this format this environment might be a good kind of um, template or foundation to build some of that on but it'll be what you decide and what you choose like john said um, my name is paul i am a uh, what i call a trauma therapist i spend my days um, in an office here in milwaukee And I work um, with two primary um, populations. I work with um, both men and women who have experienced some level of sexual abuse as children or teenagers or even adults Um, and they are now wrestling with the pain or the consequences of some of those choices, um, either their own choices or the choices of others. I also work with uh, primarily men, but both men and women who are wrestling with sexual addiction. So whether that's pornography addiction or acting out in some way, uh, I spend my days helping those individuals figure out why they do what they do and how to have some practical, hands-on, effective tools to kind of navigate some of that. Uh, I've been counseling for almost six years now. My wife and I, um, her name is Shannon. We've been married for 17 years, and we have four kids at home. My oldest daughter, who about two days ago just looked like this little guy over here, okay, oh, back there, is now a sophomore in high school. She's getting ready to start driving, and my world's about to change profoundly. Um, I have three other boys after that. I have an eighth-grade son, sixth-grade son, and um, I got one more in there. Oh, second-grade son. So my wife is busier than I am on most days. Is it okay if we pray here? We're allowed to do that? (laughs) Okay. Can I start us off with some prayer? Now that we know where we're going, um, we can see if we can have eyes and ears to listen to maybe what our creator would like to tell us. It's also a good time to sneak out now if this is a little bit overwhelming. So let's all close our eyes and if I can, we'll pray real quickly. Father in heaven, you are a good God. You are faithful. You are kind. You are compassionate. And I am thankful that you know us deeply and personally. You know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, I would ask that the time that we spend tonight will be honoring to you that we will be able to hear your voice speak to us that our hearts would be receptive that our walls would be down and that we would be able to both know you better and learn how to know each other better as well may you be glorified in everything that we say and do tonight and in your name amen I'll admit that my failure experience, the failure class right now, got started with a um, very strange event. One that I never expected it. I was taken uh, uh, by surprise. I was off guard when this lesson walked up behind me and smacked me upside the head so hard that I was reeling from it for a couple days. This lesson came in the form of poker. How many of you have played poker before? Okay, familiar with poker. The new hot game right now is what? Texas Hold'em. So you might recognize some of this. I had played online poker just for fun because I wanted to learn how to play. I could play with buddies, things like that. But I was using pretend money. For those who aren't familiar with poker, playing with pretend money and playing with real money is a very different game. When it's not real money, people are just throwing chips everywhere, it doesn't really matter, they don't play strategy. So I said I'd like to actually play um, some real poker. So I put up $50 and I said I'm going to spend $50 teaching myself poker here. It's a good investment, I'm just going to learn how to play. And I figured I'm not going to win it back, I might jump up a little high, but I, this is a learning time for me. So. I've been playing poker with real cash uh, for, I don't know, a couple days, and I'm down to, uh, let's say around 20 bucks out of the 50, so I've already lost $30. And I hit this hand, and I'm going, all right, pretty good hand. For those new pokers, is that a good hand, would you play it or fold it? it. Let's play it, okay? So I do, and here's the flop, here's what comes up. Anyone tell me, is that a still good hand? We're doing all right so far. And I'm going, sweet day, here we go. And so I'm also learning the nuances of poker. When to bet hard, when to bet slow, how to make sure other people stay in the game so you get all of their money. So I'm, I'm slow betting right now. I'm not, not going crazy. I'm not kind of jumping the gun so everyone knows, oh my gosh, this guy has a hot hand. Let's bail out. And you know, I get a little money, but not as much as I could. So I'm slow playing because I got three of a kind. The nine and the five don't help a whole lot. Okay, what's the next card called? The turn? That's the turn. What am I sitting on? Good day for Paul. Life is nice. I can't believe it. So now, it's me and one other guy playing, everyone else is folded out and I'm going, here we go. So I start to bet a little bit more aggressively and the guy bites. Okay, He starts raising and I'm going, sweet, full house, life's good. And the pot's up to probably 25 bucks or so. Again, we're not talking huge money. This isn't, you know, the World Series of Poker. This is 25 bucks, okay? Last card hits, the, the turn or the um, river. No help, sweet, no chance of a straight, no chance of a flush, full house, high hand. Anyone know the stats? Anyone really into poker? What, what's the percentages on that hand being a winning hand? It's around a 99% chance of that being a winning hand. So, I'm betting hard and he is not backing away. The world is good. I'm taking his money. Here we go. We're up to about 30, 35 bucks. I've got 15 bucks in or so, all that. And now we hit, <coughs> and now we have do the turn cards. I'm going, sweet, he has three of a kind, but it's three of nines, isn't it? It's not. Stinking four of a kind—the percentage of that are even harder to hit than a full house. So all this money, all of this excitement, all of this—I um, wish you could describe that feeling in your chest when you know something's going on. And again, it's thirty bucks. It's not—we're not talking the World Series of Poker. But I was jazzed, and then he sees that, and all my money goes out of my pile, and it's online poker, all over to him and I'm left with about five bucks. And at that moment I felt my heart, I felt this knot in my stomach just wrench up and I excused myself from the table, I got five bucks now and I wandered around the house going oh my gosh what did I just do? I was foolish how could I have made that mistake? How could I have not seen that happening? And I beat myself up for two solid days. Two solid days. I should have known, I should have known, I should have known. That's the script I hear playing in my head. Now, you guys look like smart folks. Should I have known he had four nines? No. no. You sure? Okay. So. You've come to the same conclusion that it took me two days to come to the conclusion of. And what I I bumped up against was a statement that I've heard, and I didn't understand the magnitude of it until I experienced it, until I played it out. It's this statement right here. Was I playing to win, or was I playing not to lose? The difference is this. When you play to win, When the numbers look good, when the risk looks manageable, when everything looks like it should be going well, get in the game, play, play hard, play aggressively, don't be afraid. But the lesson I learned growing up in my home was never risk, always play it safe, especially with money, okay, always play it safe, never risk, and, and, Be as wise as you can by by knowing as much of your environment around there. Playing not to lose means as soon as he started betting hard, I should have gone, "Uh uh-oh, this is getting kind of scary. (coughs) Bail out, bail out so that I can save my two or three dollars and I don't get put into a compromising situation. When you live life that way, as I had done my entire life, you know what that looks like? It's a life that doesn't have a whole lot of adventure. It doesn't have a whole lot of spice. It doesn't have a whole lot of growth opportunities. It means you play it safe. You don't take, you don't even consider trying anything or being seen or participating in anything because you run the risk that you might get hurt. You might make a mistake it might not work out. And so I spent most of my life playing it safe. And this poker game pointed that out because after I ran the numbers again, I said, I'm sitting on a stinking full house queen's high. You better play because if you don't, you're going to be missing out. (coughs) The $15 in that poker hand was about 10 sessions worth of therapy. I don't think I could have ever learned that if I would have paid for 10 sessions worth of therapy. The best 15 bucks I ever spent. Because this lesson right here, I got something going off my throat here, excuse me. (coughs) This lesson right here (coughs) was the epitome of my life that defined how I saw the world. And I said at that moment, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm tired of it. I've lost so much already. It's time for me to try something different. And so a stupid poker game said, let's change life. But that means I have to try different things. I have to start risking things. i got to do all these things around failure. And that's when I started this journey trying to understand some of this. <coughs> More bad news. If you. Um, We're attending the class believing that I'm going to teach you how to avoid failure. Um, Again, we'll all bow our heads right now and you can get up and leave because this class is not about learning how to avoid failure. I can't teach you that. That's impossible. We have this thing called the human condition. We are fallible and sinful and broken and we live in a broken world. And we can't avoid failing. So we are not going to worry about how to avoid failure. Instead, what I do want to see if we can learn together is how to redeem our failures, how to learn from our failures, how to take something that is unavoidable and move through it in a way that doesn't hold us back, that doesn't hinder us, that doesn't cost us as much as it could. And that those, those moments that could be catastrophic can now be life-changing $15 a $15 failure um, was a profound life-changing moment I redeemed that failure and I want to show you that you can do that with all these other failures in your life if you have questions as we're moving through this you can just raise your hand this uh, dialogue conversation always makes us a little bit easier so if you have and by the way I'm going to try to learn all your names so that in eight weeks I can call on you by name. Is it Steve? Yeah. All right. Thanks, George. No problem, Mike. Um, yeah, I was just going to say like, a couple things, like how could you not play that? And secondly, like the other guy, I'm sure, was sitting with four nines going, man, I only got 15 bucks out of that. You know what <laughs> sure. I mean? So, yeah. My 15 bucks. That's good. Sure. You know. Yeah. Four of a kind, that's. It is rare, especially in Texas Hold'em. Queen high full house. Good, stinking grief. I kind of was the guy with the nines, except I had the pair of twos. And yeah. on the flop, the third two came up. And on the river, the fourth two. When I won the, when I won the high hand of the <clears> night with four twos. Yep. And everybody's like, what? out of your mind. Why did you play a pair of Why'd twos? Why did you play a pair of twos? So have you ever thought about it from the other guys Perspective. No, because he has my 15 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's my bucks. Okay. Yeah, I wish I was the guy with a pair of nines, but I can tell you of what I know of myself, I don't know if I would have played three nines on the turn or on the flop there. I'm seeing that queen on there. My life lesson, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make logic, it's a fouled thinking pattern. Okay, It's cognitive distortion use a fancy-schmancy counseling term, a thinking error says, play it safe, don't risk. And if I would have lived the script that I've been taught growing up, I would have walked away from a winning hand. So each of us have these scripts that play in our head. We hit the little play button when we get into certain situations, and they dictate our behaviors. The more that we can become aware of what those scripts are, and we can evaluate, is this accurate, is this inaccurate? We, became, we, we become more self-aware and we become less prone to being kind of blown and tossed or manipulated around by, by circumstances. We take a little bit more power. We have a little bit more um, strength to handle the, rockies, the rocky parts of our life. Does that make sense? Perfect. Anyone know who Thomas Watson is? Thomas Watson is the CEO, was a CEO of a little small computer company called IBM. He, um, back in the 60s, had a manager working for him. It's this side of the room. It takes my voice away. I'm going to go away from you, Danny man. You're messing me up. (coughs) Okay. He had a manager, and as they were doing some big projects, um, this one big project was um, racking up um, in money invested into this project, eight, nine, ten million dollars worth. Ten million dollar mark, the project falls apart. The manager who's in charge of this says, I just lost the company, ten million dollars. Anyone guess what happens next? (laughs) You get that little pink slip that says, thanks for coming, but, you know, find another job. So this guy's sitting on it for a couple days going, I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get fired. Finally, the call comes. Thomas Watson, CEO of the company, calls him in, makes him sit in the waiting room of the executive board, you know, the big mahogany walls, the big power pictures, makes him sit there for a while. He can see Thomas Watson in his office kind of storming back and forth. He knows he's about to get a very good firing. It's going to be one for the record books. He walks in, sits down meekly, humbly. Thomas Watson says, do you know why I have called you here? And the guy goes, I absolutely do. Um, I'm about to get fired. And I'll read the quote here. Okay. He says, fired? Hell, I just spent ten million dollars educating you. I just want to be sure that you've learned the right lesson. in poker, $10 million thing. But the concept is the same. Thomas Watson understood that this guy probably, if he's learned the right lesson, won't make that mistake again. And that education, why in the world would he want to lose it? And so he saw the value in the person and said, I'm going to get more traction out of this one experience than I ever will if he never made a mistake. And he doesn't fire him, he doesn't scold him, but he teaches him, he molds him, he shapes him. How many of you have seen The Lion King? Perfect. Uh, how many of you have seen both the cartoon and the theater production? I took my wife um, on Thursday to go see the theater. Pretty amazing, pretty nice. <coughs> Um, And so Friday I'm having uh, coffee with John gone back there and we're talking about the Lion King and his eyes light up like a little kid in a candy store because he starts going on and on and on about all the lessons in there and I'm going, John, give me a break. I got all the lessons from the Lion King. You're, You're taking all my good material. You remember the scene in the Lion King after they come back? How many have not seen the Lion King? I should ask that. Okay. The two guys with the beards that look a little less colored. Alright, we'll give you a break. Your homework is to go home and watch The Lion King. Okay. The Lion King. They're coming back from the elephant graveyard. Um, Simba, Nala, the two lion cubs have been frolicking, got in trouble. The hyenas are about to eat them. Bad news, I'm giving away the plot. You're going to be disappointed already. And they're coming back, Mufasa, the big huge lion comes in and saves them and now all four of them are walking back from the elephant graveyard, remember that scene? And the line here is great because in this deep, thick, growly kind of voice Mufasa says Zazu, which is the crazy bird, take Nala home, I need to teach my son a lesson. And Simba drops into the grass and his ears pinned back like good scared animals are supposed to do because he knows I'm dead. (laughs) I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. I, I, I compromised myself, I compromised Nala. Bad news. And so dad takes him up to Pride Rock or wherever it is and does he scold him? Does he shame him? Does he berate him? What does he do? He takes his son And he is very direct and says, I was scared and I am not happy with you right now. But here is the lesson that I want you to learn. And he embraces him and he wraps him up and they end up playing around with each other and becoming stronger in that moment, not weaker. Rhetorical question. Hmm. How many of your parenting experiences were like that. Okay, Okay, rhetorical question, I don't want to have the answer. But I can tell you my story and that would have been a foreign scene. That would not have been familiar territory. Make a mistake and I know what happens. (laughs) And I learned what to do when you make a mistake. Failures can be redeemed, failures can be used to teach and to grow and to change from If you want to increase your success rate, you have to double your failure rate. Same guy, Thomas Watson. If you want to increase your success rate, a very different way of thinking about it. You have to try and fail, and try and fail, and try and fail, and try and fail. And along the way, you're going to hit success after success after success. But you've got to be willing to fail along the way. Imagine that. Is that kind of a skewed perspective for you? All right. Say again? Very good. Yeah, absolutely. If you are in sales, how many no's before you get a yes? All those things. Some of us that don't have that constitution. I know I don't. One no, you don't like me? Oh man. Shoot. This week we're talking about the belief around failure of I am not supposed to fail. I'm not allowed to fail. I shouldn't make any mistakes in my life. I think that we learn that perspective from three primary areas in life. I want to talk about those a little bit. What if there was a place in this world where you were encouraged, you were supposed to try new things. You are supposed to learn all sorts of new skills and tasks and information. And after you are given all of that direction, after you're taught all that stuff, the person who's teaching you says, alright we're gonna let you go out and try it on your own. And it really is this spot over here. Oh <coughs> man. After you try it on your own, we're going to do a quick evaluation to see how well you did and the areas that you don't do so well in, we're going to just go ahead and spend a little bit more time working on that so that you can improve that, be feeling really good about yourself, and move on. What if there was a place like that in this world, wouldn't that be nice? What would you call that? Home. What? Home. Home. I'm going to call it actually school. You go to school, right? And you're supposed to say, I don't have this information. Please teach me, teacher. And they give you this information. And then you take an evaluation. Those are called tests. And you see how well you do on those tests so that that the teacher can now know, oh, we need to keep working in this area because this area is not quite right. And we're going to help you become as good as you can. And it's filled with nurturing and kindness. And it's filled with Um, affirmation, it's filled with um, uh, creativity, all those things. You're laughing again. Is that typically what schools look like right now? What would be a good description of, let's say, a modern public school in this random town that we live in? What's it feel like? Cookie cutter assembly line, okay, yes. What else, how would you describe them? Is it about, say again? I was gonna say tests are more ways to know who's failing. There you go. Just so you know if you fail or not. Yeah, tests are, let's prove, let me just point out how bad you are, how much you have failed. They actually have that word, you failed, okay? And the weight gets put onto the performance component of the the school rather than the learning component of that. And I think most of us, again, if your school experience was like my school experience, it was new understanding to me when I heard that school was supposed to be about learning. School was about performance. School was about evaluation. School was about telling you how good you were rather than, you know what? We want you to be different and to change and to move out of this. And when some of these concepts were first introduced to me, you know what? School is supposed to nurture you. It's supposed to um, let you try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. And along the way, there's this one person who knows you good enough to say, "Oh, let me help you with this area so that you don't keep failing in that area in that same area again, and you can grow and change." It must be <laughs> I don't think those, there's many of those schools out there. Um, again, John Gunn and I were talking, and uh, any of you heard of TED Talks? TED Talks is kind of these major thinkers in the world. Addictive. If you jump onto the website, you just keep clicking on link after link after link. They're amazing concepts. That they talk about all sorts of stuff. And I came across this one called Tinkering School? Tinker schools. Tinker schools. And basically, you take a pile of kids, you throw them in the middle of a wood shop, And then you say, all right guys, let's make a roller coaster out of skates and two by fours and milk crates and all sorts of other things. And we got two weeks to do it. How do we begin? And they let the kids from six years old on up to you know 12 years old. They're using power saws and drills. And along the way, the teacher, the facilitator, is saying, here's how to use a drill so you don't drill through your leg as you know putting it in a two by four and they're teaching them and at the end of this two weeks they all take rides down the roller coaster down the hill in the back of the school. It's about learning and growing and changing and that guy there, I wish I knew his name, I can't remember, he understands that education, that teaching is about discovery and discovery happens through trial and error, through failing, through um, exploration and he's we said, you know what? I'm just going to build my own school and see what happens. Let's, let's, you know, see how many other people like this model. Big hit. Lots and lots of people signing up for it. I would sign up for it, and I'm, you know, not six to twelve. Be a heck of a lot of fun. Um, I think our school environment crushes our spirit. It starts to help us judge ourselves according to other people as well. Oh my gosh, that person got an A, and I only got a B minus. That must mean what? we make an evaluation, a judgment about ourselves. They're better, I'm worse. And when you have that confirmation of, oh, the test says I'm bad and my parents say that I'm bad and my friends say that I'm bad, guess what? It must be true. Well, I must be bad. What if they just worked harder? I'll clarify. Characteristic of me in school. Yep. I'm going to clarify something right here. I don't have a suggestion on how to fix the problem. I'm simply saying, here's what I think can be learned from a broken system. I think the system needs to be evaluated and and fixed. Um, But I don't have that suggestion. I wish I did. That will be, you know, let's make that week nine. And we'll build a whole new school and see if we can, you know, get a lot of people to sign up for it. There are some people who are driven a little bit more intensely. Um, There are some people who um, aren't and that plays out in natural consequences. I I totally understand that. It would be more of the environment of wouldn't it be nice if there were teachers who recognized this and understood that and were able to nurture along the kids who need to hear that encouragement where it is about discovery and understanding rather than did you hit the benchmark in the state test so that we can get our funding and all those other things still. I'm not, I'm not here anti-school at all. I am saying that you put moldable children starting at five or six years old, you put them into a system that reinforces certain things. They tend to walk out of that system believing certain things about themselves. I think that's the first place we learn this kind of view of ourself around should we fail or should we not fail. Second place. Um, I already heard it shouted out over there. Our home. Exactly. <clears throat> We're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, more in depth uh, next week when we talk about shame and guilt, but our home environment. Up on the challenge course, we, uh, does anyone know, not know what a challenge course is? I want to clarify that real fast. challenge course is um, basically a collection of um, ropes and cables and logs and climbing equipment up usually in trees, and you strap in, and you start doing these, what are called initiatives, where you, um, you, know, you pile a bunch of people on a log, and then you try to move past them. And it's an experiential learning kind of opportunity, where you're creating an environment to, for self-discovery. So as a facilitator up on the challenge course, we have this one game called Diamond in the Rough, 25 stones on the ground. And the object is to move from the starting stone through, a, through an invisible pattern that's in my head as a facilitator to get to the ending stone. The only way to discover what that pattern is is to take a step and to see if it's right or wrong and if it's wrong you go to the end of the line and it's the next person's turn you have to remember all of the steps for all the people prior. Um, it can be kind of um, taxing on the brain. There's rules around helping and not helping all those things and if we could Run Failure 101 differently, I'd put you all in initiatives rather than sitting here being lectured at, but time and space and all those things. But Diamond in the Rough. 25 stones on the the ground. I was running it with um, a group of women who had um, about eight or nine women. All of them had um, a sexual abuse history. They were part of a recovery group. And as we were running the weekend, uh, we did this event. And as we moved through, we moved through, the last woman to get onto the pattern um, moved halfway through the pattern and ended up stuck on one stone. And she couldn't remember what the next step in the event was. And so she stood there. I watched her start to drop. Her face drop, her emotions drop, and you can see them kind of welling up inside of her. And I said, tell me what's going on. And she says, right now I hear all these things in my head. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. Why even try? Give up. You're not as good as your sister. Blah, blah, blah. She's standing on a stone, but all of these scripts start playing. And I ask her, what would you like to do? First time she's ever been asked that. Because if you want to step off the stone and be done, you can do that. How many times have you done that in your life before? And she said, many times. I've walked away from so many things in my life because I felt stupid and dumb. And I said, if you could do it differently this time, what would you like to do? And so she stood there, and she just takes a step onto the next stone. And with all the compassion and tenderness in my heart, I say, that's not the right stone. <clears throat> and so she drops her head, and she walks off the, the, the board. And I say, hold on, stop. Would you like another chance? And she stop, stopped and thought about it for a minute. And she, finally she said, yeah, I think I will. So she goes back and stands on that stone. She looks around, and she steps on another stone, finally. I'm sorry, but that's not the right stone. <laughs> what would you like to do? And this time she didn't walk off the board. She stepped back. And by now the tears are starting to flow because she's so uncomfortable because she's not allowed to try again. She's never been allowed to try again. She's supposed to have it right the first time. Even though no one's taught her, she's supposed to. script's playing over in her head. She's not allowed allowed to make mistakes. What would you like to do? She takes another step. I'm sorry, that's not the right stone. And I, I couldn't have scripted it any better. There was about seven options. Guess how many times she got it wrong. Six. The right stone was the last one. I actually think that, that it was probably God a little ordained there because she finally steps on the right stone and when she steps on the right stone she knows the rest of the pattern and she finishes out the rest of the course perfectly. But it was that one sticking point point. and when she gets done with the course all the other women there's this eruption of just yeah, how about that? And she for the first time in her life heard that she's allowed to try again, that she's allowed to learn from her mistakes, that she doesn't have to just give up or quit. I had another high school gal on our high events. It's called Tarzan's Alley. It's a series of about 12 rope loops and you have to stand in one loop, put your foot in the other, they're about that far apart, and get yourself swinging back and forth and then shift over and kind of move over. It's killer on the upper arms, upper body, it's really, really hard, especially if you've done a bunch of the other stuff. And if she's moving through, she gets about two-thirds of the way through and she falls off right where everybody falls off because their arms give out and they're just tired and this high school girl. When she falls off, she's in a harness, she's in a rope, she's belayed, she just gets lowered to the ground safely, she hits the ground, and she unclips the belay, and then starts to take off the harness. And I'm going, hold on a second, hold on a second, tell me, you know, why are you taking off your harness? She says, well, I fell off, I'm not allowed to continue. And I say, what do you mean you're not allowed to continue? Well, I fell off the event, I'm not allowed to. Once you fall off, you're not allowed to go through it anymore, right? I said... Well, actually, on our course, we have different rules. If you come off, you actually are allowed to get back up and go again. In fact, that's why we have this rope ladder right here, you know, three feet from where you're standing, because lots of people fall off at that exact spot right there. You can climb back up the ladder and just finish out the rest of the course. And she says, no, you don't understand. I'm not allowed to go again. And she took off her harness, and she walked down the trail, and she spent the rest of the eight hours sitting in the lodge on a couch and she didn't continue, because the script playing in her head, the lessons that she learned from, in that situation, dad, had a profound hold on her, and she's only allowed one shot, and if she doesn't get it right the first time, then she needs to stop and give up, and not progress. Is that a painful lesson to learn? How many opportunities, how many experiences do you think she missed out on because she did not ever give herself the option or the grace to try again. I don't want any of you to miss out on the amazing things in life if that's the script you have playing over in your head. We tend to get those, those scripts, we tend to get those messages from home. Again, not all homes, not all the time, but many homes um, carry those, those strong messages. The reality is when parents don't have their stuff taken care of, it tends to bleed over on their kids. The most inconvenient thing on the planet is a kid. These kids just keep getting their hands and stuff and touching stuff and trying things and pulling things off the shelves and... It just gets a mess and when a parent doesn't want to be inconvenienced by that or they're frustrated by that or they think that the child should act like an adult then it taints that, that parenting opportunity. Again, we go back to the Mufasa and Simba model and Dad said, I get it. I get why you were doing that. Scary, don't do that and let me train you, let me teach you, let me guide you. There's a um, parenting series that I want to teach next. i got all these things I want to teach, but it's um, parenting from the inside out. It's understanding your story and how it affects the dynamics of your parenting styles for those of us who are parents in the room. It's the class I would have taken before I had four kids. <laughs> because i got lots of stories and experiences on, by the way, don't do this. Okay, That would be pretty much the whole class. Let's just look at Paul's parenting skills and see what not to do. Um, Probably the third place that we get this skewed perspective is um, our work environments when we start working. Again, work is typically performance-based, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. Work is about accomplishing a task, but many work environments say you must already have these skill sets before we will hire you. Um, and other work environments say we want to hire quality people even if they have no idea what they're doing but because their character, their personhood adds this amazing dynamic into the organization. We'll make a spot for you because we want you as the person and we will train you and we will teach you. Uh, Anyone heard of Zappos? Anyone know who Zappos is? Okay, It's an idea that they said would never work, an online shoe store. Again, weirdest thing in the world. What are you supposed to do with shoes? try them on before you buy them. They figured out how to do that online. They send you shoes next day air. Try them on if you don't like them. They send them back free, free, no shipping, anything like that. Um, their training program is amazing because they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications. They pick the best out of those people. They train them for three or four days. And then at the end of that training, do you know what they do? They offer all of those trainees, I think, it's up to $2,500 now to quit at that moment. Imagine that. I need a quick $2,500. Let's see if I can get hired on for a week at Zappos so I can, you know, get out of there. But they offer all the trainees $2,500 to quit at that moment because they know if we have employees who are working for us who aren't really committed, who don't want to learn the rest of this, it's going to cost us far more in training and time and rehiring and all this stuff. And so we're getting a deal at $2,500 now to kick out all the bad people the people who want to learn, and these are people who don't know their system at all, the people that, they, that want to learn, that are hungry, they now go through every part of the organization. If they're working at the call center, they go work in the shipping for a while, so they understand how shipping works, and then they go work in the call center, and then they work at the front desk, and they do all these things, so that every person there has this profound understanding of the entire organization. That's a work environment that is encouraging of trial and error and learning and guiding and shaping and growing rather than, we hired you, you got your resume, here you go, and don't screw up and don't cost us any money. So home, work, and school are probably the three big right now that teach us from a very young age that we're not supposed to make mistakes. It gives us a skewed perspective. It, our, our entire paradigm, the glasses that we view the world through, is a little bit tweaked. Okay? What about church? We yeah, just, yeah, we, we're just, yeah, we're just... We, you didn't say church. Churches never teach that. <laughs> I don't know what churches you're going to. Um, Legalistic... When, when, you, when you're teaching at a church, it's best not to talk oh, about sorry. church. Okay? Oh, okay. Other churches, okay, other than the very healthy ones that we're at right now, whoever's listening. Um, Yeah, I was going to cover church probably the next week, but um, actually on the grace, the week, I think, four or whatever that is, um, for those who have grown up in the church, we tend to hear other things rather than you are loved and accepted the way you are, the whole, you know, you were loved once while you were a sinner, okay? We don't quite understand that, and we get stuck on the, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do kind of, you know, rules and stuff, so, yeah. Week four or five, whatever the grace one was, we'll talk about it there, okay? Skewed perspective. Um, one little small thing here, the uh, reason why failure hurts so much is what I call the reality of failure. Um, Failing requires humility. It costs us our pride. I would like to be seen as the guy who has it all together. And when I spend a lot of time and energy trying to maintain that, I tend to hide my mistakes, not put myself in places where I might make mistakes. I try to av- avoid any situations that have any smatterings or smells of, of putting me in a bad situation. When we try to hold on to our pride, we tend to be afraid of mistakes. When we try to hold on to our image, the facade. Failing requires genuineness, authenticity, and honesty. By the way, this is why individuals who wrestle with addiction have a hard time with failure. Because maintaining the facade, maintaining the fantasy that addictive substances and experiences provide means you don't have to face reality. And reality is filled with failure. Reality is filled with mistakes. And so the, the addictive process plays into the anti-failure mentality. Yeah? What if you're a recovery addict if, if you fail at recovery, you failure? Exactly. For, for people in recovery, we, we gravitate towards this black and white thinking. Yep, I have to do this perfectly, and if I screw up at all, it means I'm not doing the process right, I'm not working the steps right, that's it, I need to give up and just go back to the life I lived, right? What do, they, what do they have you learn early on for a 12-step recovery? You have to stand up and say what? Hi, my name is Paul, and I am a insert addiction here, because what it does is is it removes that. And it requires that humility to be able to do that. People who have started to come to terms with that have a much greater success of moving through their recovery with any level of success because they no longer expect perfection. They are aware of or comfortable with their humanity, with their messiness. They can live in the gray a little bit easier. The reality of failure it costs us pride, it costs us image or the facade, and finally, it costs us whatever was risked. My poker game, I lost 15 bucks. I could have used that 15 bucks on something else. The guy who was at IBM, he lost $10 million. That's not small. When we risk things, we have to understand that it's going to cost us whatever we risk, whether that's relationship or cash or success or image. Um, We have to be willing to put some of those things on on the line for us to get healthy. I don't want to sell you the idea that learning how to risk, learning how to fail is easy. I hope I'm not doing that at all. I am saying that we can survive failure. We can't avoid it so we can survive it. I sat on a platform 30 feet in the air with a gentleman who had just gone through our high course. He'd gone through the Tarzan's Alley, he's gone through this thing called the Burma Bridge, he's gone across the Wobbly Walk, and now he's sitting on a platform, getting ready to be clipped into our zip line, shoot 300 feet down the, down the course into the trees, um, and I'm saying, you know, how's it going? How's the day been so far? And he's going, fantastic, it's been good. I haven't fallen at all, I've been doing really, really good. And I said, How much energy are you spending trying not to make any mistakes? And he goes, a lot of energy, I'm exhausted. What if, what if you took that energy and instead of trying not to fail, what if you use that energy and learned what to do when you do fail? I'm not saying go out and try to find the failures, but we can't avoid them. And you're working awfully hard to never make any mistake ever again. What if you take that same energy and start devoting it towards what to do when I do fail. Because that way you don't have to be afraid anymore. You, you have that recovery system. Um, it's like knowing how to swim makes it a lot easier to go out on a boat. You know what to do if you fall overboard. If you are on the boat and you don't know how to swim, you're terrified that if the boat's shaky, you know the whole canoe thing, those things always tip over. very obvious to a lot of people, and will affect a lot of people, so they feel kind of, not just only themselves, but that they would have a lot of impact on a lot of lives. Yeah. Brilliant question. Um, I'm going to totally dodge it right now by saying we're going to talk a little bit about that next week, um, because I want you to have practical, concrete, what to do with failure. I don't want it to be theoretical at all very hands-on, experiential kind of um, class is what I want this to be. So I will give you the steps that you can do when failure happens, what to do with failure, like that guy needed to learn uh, up on the the course. And I think that it applies whether you are teaching this class, whether you are parenting, or whether you are the President of the United States. I think that it is scalable. but the costs are higher when, when there's more responsibility on that. That's one of the consequences of taking on a leadership role. And the more you're aware of it, hopefully you have... That's why they tend to give, make leaders who have lots of experience, because they have hopefully learned all those important lessons when the costs are much lower. I want my children to learn <coughs> Ride your skateboard as fast as you can down the, down the street, and fall off of that, and scrape your arm, and bloody your nose, and, and mess up your pants, and all those things, because scrapes heal. Skateboards are cheap. I don't want them to learn that lesson on their first car, doing 80 miles an hour at 2 in the morning around you know, sharp corners. So the lessons, the best leaders tend to have a lot of failures learning from them when they're manageable cost-wise so that they can extrapolate lessons for the bigger picture. That's a short answer. All right. How we proceed. Here's where we're going and then I'm going to give you a little quick assignment here if that's okay. How we're going to proceed. I hit that. Let's see what happens. Um, What's the guy's name? Jonathan Brown, University of Washington psychologist. He had this statement. Those lacking self-esteem tend to overgeneralize their failures, which means that they conclude that they are just plain less intelligent and less competent than others. When we don't have a strong sense of ourselves, self-esteem, we tend to overgeneralize, make our failures bigger than they should be. It's 15 bucks. It's not that big of a deal. They overgeneralize that, and the conclusion, the logical fallacy is, I am just not good enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm less intelligent and less competent than others. He goes goes on to say, one second Steve, he goes on to say, paradoxically, the best way to build self-esteem, he doesn't say to stop failures, but the best way to build self-esteem is to take action after falling down in order to build a reserve of personal efficacy. Or effectiveness. Again, not a whole lot of new concepts, but get back on the horse after you get bucked off. When you do that, the experiences are going to teach us. What it looks like is this. We want to have a positive self-concept. We want to like ourselves. We want to love ourselves. I don't think that's a secular idea. I believe that God is honored when we love the creation that he has made us. When we live fully and completely in who we are. To have a positive self-concept, we need to feel capable. We gain gain a high self-esteem by feeling like we can conquer lots of things. We're not afraid of a lot of things. That comes from experiencing successes. Man, I've done this over and over I'm good at it. I feel good about myself. That comes usually after experiencing failure because you're never good at anything the very first time. Rarely. You have to experience failure to get good at anything. And you only experience failure is if you learn how to risk and try. This class is about the two foundational pieces right here. Because I want you to be comfortable risking and trying things so that you can, again, the equation goes, crap, I just had a failure. I need to give up. And so you never get to jump up to any of these higher levels. If we can get past this one right here, then our world changes. I get better at playing poker. I become a better leader. I become a better parent, better husband, better worker. All these things. If you guys walk away with only one thing tonight, here's the last, or the one thing I want you to walk away with. For some of you, this is going to be the first time you've heard it. Others, this is not new information but I want to reemphasize it. You are allowed to fail. The statement I shouldn't make mistakes is a lie. You are allowed to make mistakes. You will survive them. Don't start running or keep running from them. Instead, go this is part of who I am, I'm going to learn what to do with them finally, so they don't define who I am personally. Here's what I want to ask of you. Um, would, you would you like to have a practical side to these classes over the next eight weeks? Or would just like to be more of a book learning lecture series? Would you like homework? Really? Well, he said yes. I'm assuming everyone else is on board. (laughs) Shall we agree? We learn best by what? Trying practice. So let's just do that. Let's not make this theory. Let's actually put ourselves out there in some way. Here's the invitation for those in the class here. At eight weeks, I would like you to be able to stand up and we're going to learn the value of being transparent, of sharing, of letting your mistakes be seen and be known. And at week eight, it's going to be a time for me to stop talking and to hear from others in the room. To do that, I want to get to know each other just a little bit better. And um, I, want, I want the room to be safe. <laughs> safe but uncomfortable. I'm totally okay making you guys uncomfortable. I'm a counselor. so I'm supposed to do. But I want there to be an environment of safety, because we don't learn when we're comfortable. We learn when we are uncomfortable. So the invitation is, as we do some of the discussion things, as we might even do some, um, I might even make you do a couple events in here, just because it might be fun for me to watch. Um, What would you, what would you, need to feel safe in this group if we're going to do some things together? Anyone have an idea? What would you need personally to feel safe? Trust? Trust? What does that look like? Trust. I mean being able to spill my guts and know that it's not going to leave the room. Okay. That's confidentiality. Confidentiality builds trust. Excellent. I call it the Vegas, Vegas rule. What happens at Imago? Stays. Stays at Imago, okay? Or refuge, shall we say? Yeah. Um, just a practical thing is I'd like to see the chairs set up so you can see- Way better. Me too. Okay, I'll put my request in that. What's your name? Veronica. Veronica? Okay, that was Veronica's request. So, yeah. Coffee, maybe? Oh, yeah. So, we, okay, we're getting the big things covered off here first. All right, coffee and goodies and sugar. Okay. Excellent. Yep. <laughs> to feel safe, confidentiality was very, very important. Anyone else? What would you need to feel safe? Judy? Well, it's kind of crazy, but I'd do better with a smaller group. All right, so if you're going to leave, Judy would feel better. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, it, it, you <laughs> know, it break so down it's so big. Point, it's it's smaller. Perfect. Yeah. Smaller groups. Make that happen for you, Judy. Anyone else? What would you want if we're going to actually try to put some of this stuff into practice? Steve? The only thing I thought while I'm here is, like, maybe if we can just go through and say who we are and why. Perfect. Um, I will put the invitation out there and we'll also make it possible that people pass if they want to. Okay? Anything else? The sign in front of the door that says, Only real sinners welcome, theological ones must go somewhere else. Wow. All right. So, how about we spin that into the words um, authenticity, being honest? No. No? No. Alright. right, sackcloth and ashes or something? Okay. I think I know what you're saying. Someone else? You're just waving. Excellent. Alright. Can we all agree to some of those things? I believe that confidentiality, if we're going to tell stories, um, my rule is let other people tell let people tell their own stories. Don't tell other people's stories. Um, Participation. Um, Not everyone has to, but if you would at least participate in listening or being aware of what's going on. Smaller groups do feel a little bit nicer, so we'll see if we can tweak out some of that. Um, And we'll see if we can get the sugar and the caffeine right up where we need it to be so that we can be properly medicated for this process. (laughs) Here's the question I'd like you to wrestle with tonight for about five minutes. If you are guaranteed success, If there was no chance of failure, what would you attempt? What would you try? If you were guaranteed success, what would you try? What would you change? And don't just blow off this question as, oh, that's just a nice little question. Play with it for a while. Mull it over in your head. What have you been wanting to do, but you've been too scared to try, or the cost has been too high, or All of these things. If you could try something, what would it be? Do you know? Moll that over. How were failures handled in your home growing up? I want you to chew on that question. What scripts did you learn in your home? Take five minutes, three and a half minutes, and chew on it. I want you to think about that. If you were guaranteed success, what have you been wanting to do, wanting to do, wanting to do, but have been either too scared, too hesitant, too worried about? What would it be? What I'm going to invite you to do is next week when we come back, we're going to start with these questions. We'll be in small groups and I'll give you a chance to answer some of them, not to yourself, but to other people. So pick the really safe table or the really safe group that that you want to you know try that out with. Test the waters, see how that goes. These are the easy questions. We'll get to the hard ones, you know, as we move into the series. One last thing, and then let's wrap it up. If that would be all right. Um, one of the handouts that I actually did have, and I will make copies so that they are available for next week. Um, I have what's called the doctrine of failure. This is a, um, actually it's a statement of faith or a doctrine of faith, it's kind of a top ten list um, from another uh, teacher, pastor, I actually don't know where he's from, but the topics here apply so well to the concept of failure that I wanted to read them out. Um, I'll just read out the titles of each one and then they're broken down. There's a description of each one in here so these will be made available for you next week if you want them. Number ten, salvation is a process and not merely a decision. It doesn't happen just once. It is something that's ongoing and we work through over and over. Number nine, the Christian life is a lengthy pilgrimage. We don't end up where we want to be immediately. We have to keep walking and keep walking. And it tends to work best when you walk with others, when you have good company. Perseverance is necessary to reach our goal. You have to keep trying over and over and over again. And if you don't, you don't get to where you want to be. Number seven, the work of the Spirit is primarily to comfort us, or, uh, that we are children of God, not primarily to condemn us. Back to that school model again. We're there to comfort, to encourage, to edify, not to rub you down, to, to hold you down. Number six, sanctification is the process of becoming authentically human, not odd or weird. We want to embrace all of us, even the messy parts. Number five, suffering is not evidence that God is far off or angry with you, nor is suffering evidence that your faith is too small. Suffering comes from a fallen world that we live in. And when we make mistakes, we hurt, we suffer. And sometimes when we live perfectly, we suffer. We'll talk about that in the grieving, grieving week. Number four, God is primarily known in the ordinary, not primarily in the ecstatic or the miraculous when we get up and do the dishes and eat our Wheaties and go to work, God can be seen and communed with in all of those experiences. Number three, the God of the Bible, uh, sorry, the goal of Bible study is personal knowledge of God, not greater knowledge of the Bible. It is a relationship. We are to know a person through his communication with us. More of that being seen, being known stuff. Number two, Mystery pervades all and is to be embraced, not explained away. I can't tell you why bad things happen sometimes. I can't tell you why you hurt or don't hurt or the experiences you go through. There's just some stuff that is mysterious and unexplainable. That doesn't mean that we have to run from it. Finally, number one, love is the goal of all things, not being right. That's for everyone in here who is married, or has a relationship with anybody on this planet. Man, when I try to be right with my wife, it turns out bad, okay? When I try to love her, tends to work out a little better. Love is the goal not being right. Sometimes we have to admit our failures and our mistakes. This is where we're going, and We get to walk together. We get to move through some of this together, if that would be okay. The invitation is to come back and see what happens. Um, I hope to make you a little uncomfortable so that you will grow. I hope that it will feel safe, and I hope that you will be different by the end of this. Father in heaven, again, you're a good God, and I would pray that you will bless each individual here, that you're... um, stirring of their heart will, will help them learn how to risk some things that they hold on to in an attempt to grow and change and to no longer be held captive by the, by the fear of making mistakes. Help each of us again continue to improve and change and become more Christ-like. Let us um, know how to glorify you. Thank you for each person here. Thank you for our time together. And may you continue to be glorified and in your name, amen. Amen.